As we come now before the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to the Gospel of John in chapter 20. We'll be this morning in, in John 20. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, we know it's true that, that you, you have been raised from the dead. You are seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, and you are far above all rule, all authority, and all dominion. And you have the name that is above every name. Lord, would you help us now as your church to listen to that name and to seek to honor that name. Lord, would you set us before your word with hearts that are shaped by your Holy Spirit. Help us to hear and to see and to believe. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is John in chapter 20. We have just, uh, just a few verses to take up this morning, but we'll begin in verse... Uh, 18. So John chapter 20, beginning in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of God. Now, we are still a few weeks out yet, but we know that Easter is coming soon, so we're starting to set our eyes and our hearts on the resurrection of Jesus. And in looking toward Jesus' resurrection, we need to remind ourselves, and me included, that we are not just skipping over Jesus' death. In many ways, the cross, the death of Jesus, is the very centerpiece of history. It is the reason why Jesus came. And one of the final words of Jesus on the cross is the word, it is finished. And there is a sense in which his work, specifically to atone for sin, his work there is done. His rescue of sinners is complete 
at the cross. So, so we don't want to just pass over the cross. It's crucial. At the same time, we want to see where the cross goes. That is, what comes after. Because Jesus does much more than just live and die the end. We know he lives and dies and lives again. So in these three weeks before Easter, we're going, uh, with the Lord's will and help, we're going to look at three distinct times in which the risen Lord Jesus appears to his disciples as is recorded in the Gospel of John. These are not Jesus' only resurrection appearances. He spends 40 days on earth between his resurrection and his ascension back to the Father. And in those 40 days, the scriptures record about a dozen distinct appearances at various times. Some of those appearances are very brief encounters. Some are much longer. Uh, some is an, uh, an appearance to an individual. Some are to groups of people as large as even 500 people at one time. Uh, some of those appearances come after this one that we've just read, and some even come before. This isn't the first appearances. And in fact, we're going to rewind on Easter Sunday for us to go back and look at the scene with Mary Magdalene and how Jesus appears to her. But in all of these various resurrection appearances from Jesus, in each one of them, the appearance is intentional. That is to say that Jesus isn't just back from the dead and wandering around and people are bumping into the risen Christ at the grocery store. Oh, hey, thought you were dead. You know, each, in each of these times, Jesus comes to these people for various reasons, showing himself to them. And we are given the opportunity to eavesdrop on these events, to in some sense get to stand in the room where Jesus appears alive after his death. And we want to make the most of that time to really, to really listen, to really look, to really learn all we can about our, our Lord in this. So to help us organize our listening of this, at least today, I want us to highlight, or I'll highlight, we'll together highlight, four components of this particular appearance of Jesus. The particular things that we'll see from Jesus are these, his patience, his power, his peace, and his purpose. His patience, power, peace, and purpose. Let's dive right in. First, let's look at Jesus's patience. Here's how the scene opens in verse 19. I'll read it again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. The evening of that day, the first day of the week. So this is the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the same day that Jesus has been risen from the dead. But we're told earlier, at the very beginning of this chapter, that the stone had been rolled away, had revealed this empty tomb early on the first day of the week. Like, while it was still dark, before the sun even came up. So here in this scene now, we are late 
on the first day of the week. We are, we are here in the dark of twilight. Jesus has been alive this day from sun up, but it's now sundown. He has been back from the dead for more than 12 hours here. And in this room are his, his 12 disciples. Well, not, I guess not technically the 12. We're missing Judas, because Judas by this time has tragically taken his own life. And we're missing Thomas, whom we'll see next week. But here we've got the majority of Jesus' 12 apostles. These are ones, men who have been handpicked by Jesus to follow him, appointed to be the sent apostles in his name. These men have spent almost every day of the past three years with Jesus up until the day of his death, and now they're all huddled together in, in one room, and Jesus, their Lord, their master, their friend, is alive again. But Jesus hasn't come to visit them right away. Instead, he waits. He's been up in time for breakfast, but we pass the time of breakfast, we pass the time of lunch. We pass the time of dinner until the evening of that day. Now, why has Jesus waited here? I don't know. <laughs> we don't fully know. We do know where Jesus was during the bulk of this day. Luke records Jesus as spending most of this Sunday on a very long stroll, if we can call it that, a walk to the city of Emmaus with two relatively unknown followers, one of whose name is never mentioned. We know where Jesus is during the day, but we don't know why he chose to spend so much time with those people and not hustle on quickly to get to his 12 chosen ones. You know, just after his death, now here, back in his resurrection, Jesus is the same as he was before his death. That is, Jesus is not rushed. Jesus is not hurried. Jesus is not bustling to and fro, trying to maximize his time. Instead, he is patient. And while we may not know all of the reasons why he allots his time the way he does, we can at least tell from this that his reasons, his priorities in these things don't conform to our reasons or our priorities. I don't know about you all, but if I were in similar circumstances to these, it's a weird thing to imagine, but if I were alive and dead and alive again, under these uh, circumstances, I would want to go first to my family, to my friends, and then to my enemies. Those would be my priorities. Visit family and friends right away because I don't want them to worry. I don't want them to be sad one more minute than they have to be. And then I want to visit my enemies Herod, Pilate, the ones who crucified me, just so I can 
walk up behind him and tap him on the shoulder and say, I'm back. It probably says more about me than it does about uh, Jesus. Maybe that's petty. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, why does Jesus appear to those to whom he appears? We don't really know. Whatever it is, my approach is not the approach of Jesus. He clearly has other plans. He has a different timeline in mind than I do. Even when he does visit his disciples here, it doesn't go exactly how we might expect or think. He doesn't stretch out and kick back and have a meal and hang out with them. You know, it seems, the scene doesn't tell us exactly how long Jesus stays in the room with the disciples, but, but it looks relatively like a short time. It seems like he's only there for a few minutes, maybe. And when he leaves them, however long he spends, when he leaves them, he doesn't hurry back to them after he leaves. In fact, he's not going to return to his disciples for a second visit until a full week has passed. So whether his disciples want to learn this or not, they're also going to have to learn some patience, too. But first, they see that patience lived out by Jesus. So that's the first we see in this first appearance is his patience. Now let's look at the second, which is his his power. Let me read part of verse 19 again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. John makes a point to note the, the outside nature of the room, that the room the disciples in was secured. It's shut tight, it's locked down, and yet Jesus suddenly appears among them. How? It seems strange. You know, there's a fair bit of mystery here that I have to acknowledge, but we can at least observe a few things. One is that Jesus is clear here about his, clear not as in see-through, You could see him, but he's clear in the sense that there's no question that it really is Jesus. When he's there with them in the room, he shows them himself as a sort of ID, sort of, you know, proof of his identity. He says, uh, look at me, look specifically at not my hands and feet, which would have marks of anyone who was crucified, but look at my hands and my side, he says, my hands where I'd had nails in my side, where that soldier had uniquely pierced with the spear and a gush of, of blood and water had come just a few days earlier. Jesus is clear here in his presence, but he's also corporal, which is a fancy way to say he's there in the flesh. He's there not just as a ghost or a spirit or some sort of hologram. You know, this isn't uh, Star Wars. He's there with skin on. And Jesus even encourages them to examine himself, uh, his body, later even to touch his hands inside, he says. When he says, hey, look at my side, that's not just something you could lift up his shirt. They have long robes. He would have to hitch up that robe to show the side. You could see all of his body. Probably even the marks of the crucifixion would have still been upon his body. And in the account in Luke, even uh, in this scene, eats a piece of broiled fish with them which is something the spirits not do. He's in there corporally, in the flesh. And Jesus, last thing I'll mention on this is he is changed, however. 
He's clearly there, corporally there, but he's also changed. He's really bodily there, but there is something unique about Jesus' risen body. So Jesus is different than Lazarus. You know Lazarus, guy not too much long before this scene, who was raised from the dead by Jesus. But when Lazarus is raised from the dead, Lazarus needs somebody else to open up the tomb. Jesus says, open the tomb. He also says, unbind him. Take off his grave clothes. Lazarus cannot do that for himself when he's raised. But Jesus, when he is raised, unassisted, has his own power to bodily pass through the stones of the tomb, the linen of his grave cloths, and now the solid walls of a locked room. It's weird, but it's true. Jesus' risen body is still material, still skin, still muscle, still bone, but somehow his body is powerfully, I'll say, modified material, supernatural substance. Not sure what other term to put on this. Somehow changed. And this is not due, by the way, not due to the fact that Jesus is God and man. Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's been that way since his birth. So he's, of course, omnipresent God. But that's not what allows him to do what he does here. This is part of the nature of his risen body that he's able to stand among them. Part of his glorious body, which has hugely stunning implications for us. Because Jesus in the scripture is described as being the resurrection firstfruits of many resurrection bodies of all those who are in Jesus. It's the destiny for believers. So Christians who have now died in our time, they are with Christ right now, at rest, but in spirit. Their soul, their spirit is with the Lord. At the same time, they eagerly await the renewal of their physical bodies when Christ returns, knowing that there's a day when the perishable will become imperishable, when the dishonored will become glorious, when the weak will become powerful, because we are not just spirits. We are spiritual bodies. So there's some sense in which what is true of Christ in this scene will be true of us as well. Paul says as much in Philippians uh, chapter 3, the very last verse of the chapter. He says, uh, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our lowly body will be like his glorious body. Now, does that mean that we're eventually going to get the power to do with our bodies everything that Jesus does with his? 
Does that mean that I might be able to somehow teleport or whatever it is that happened to appear in a locked room? I have to admit that I don't know for sure, but it's possible. In fact, I think it's probable. It is likely that this will be true of us one day in our glorious resurrected bodies. What we do know at least is that Jesus in his physical body has supreme power now even over the physical laws of nature. So that's his power. We've seen now Christ's patience and his power. Let's look at the third, Christ's peace. Christ's peace. This one, the word is even in the text. It's the first word that Jesus says at the end of of verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. He says it twice. He says it again in a verse or two. Peace with you, or shalom, is a common customary greeting for Jews at the time. This would have been a common thing to say. But here, Jesus is doing more than just saying hello. This isn't just, hi, guys, nor is he just wishing peace upon them, like we kind of do when we say, have a good day. I wish a good day for you. Jesus here, by saying, peace be with you, is actually giving peace to his disciples. There's something here for them to receive. And in the context of this, there's an immediate need for peace, right? Partly because, you know, they're in the locked room out of fear of the Jewish religious leaders. Of course, this is a logical thing. Think that the ones who killed Jesus are now going to want his followers dead and gone too, so they've locked themselves in. So that's a little scary. But now they've also suddenly got this appearance next to them of this man that they had recently watched die this awful death on the cross. So, so his sudden appearance would be startling and scary. They're going to need a measure of that, that piece right now. But it's not just that either. Jesus' peace to them is part, part of a bigger picture than just this one moment, just this one room. We know this because in the three days prior, in, in the Last Supper, in the upper room, Jesus gave his disciples a parting gift, a parting gift of peace as he knew he was headed toward the cross. This is back in John chapter 14, verse 25. These are his words to them. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I've said to you. Now peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
Jesus knows where he's going. And he knows it's going to be hard, immeasurably hard for him, but also for those around him. And so he gives them peace. Peace to help them not be troubled. Peace to help them not be afraid. Peace to help them take heart, knowing that Jesus had overcome the world. And Jesus' gift of peace to his disciples would be of great benefit to them, but it wasn't just for their own benefit. Jesus is now breathing his Holy Spirit upon them, renewing his peace, not only for their benefit, but for the benefit of others. This peace in the breath of the Holy Spirit is part of Jesus' means to fulfill his mission through his disciples. This brings us now to our fourth and final observation, Christ's purpose. This will carry us to the end, his purpose. Jesus here in John has appeared to his disciples at the end of this first day, not just for a good chat. Hey guys, how you been? How was Saturday? Did I miss anything good? That's not what he's after. Nor is he just coming to them for comfort. Although he does comfort them. That's not his main focus here. He comes to them because he's got a job for them to do. I've sent you for this purpose, he says, that they are going to be the ones to continue Jesus' work. Jesus' work on the cross is finished, but his work in the world is not. And the essence of that purpose in the world we see, or at least, or hear, I suppose, from him at the end in verse 23 when he says this, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We know Jesus did a lot of things throughout his ministry. He made the blind see, he made the lame walk, he made the leper clean, he made the the deaf hear. His ministry is marked by many, many messages and miracles, all good, all important. But those things are tangential to Jesus' primary purpose that he brings to the forefront here. He highlights that he has been on a mission of forgiveness. That's been his mission, to bring forgiveness, to be the atoning sacrifice, to bring forgiveness of sin and to bring us to God. Now, some people might wonder maybe rightly wonder, some people might wonder why Christians talk about sin so much. Seems like we're almost obsessed with it sometimes. Why do Christians talk about sin so much? Sometimes Christians do that for unholy reasons. 
Sometimes we talk about sin because we're hypocritical. Sometimes we talk about sin because we're judgmental. Because it makes us feel good to point out the faults of others. Makes us feel a little bit better than them and a little less guilty myself. Those things are sins of our own that we need God's forgiveness for. There's unholy reasons for us to talk about sin, but there there are holy reasons why the Christian talks about sin. We do it because our Lord Jesus talks a lot about sin. Jesus in his ministry wants us to see sin for the dark, desperate cloud that it truly is. Sin defaces the world, destroys us, and defies God. Sin is death. But sin does not need to be our master. Because Jesus was sent by the Father into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world from sin. Jesus was sent by the Father into the world not to bury us under our sin and guilt, but to bury himself under our sin and guilt, taking our sin upon himself so that it would even kill him, that his death would bring us life, That's central to his mission. We cannot emphasize it enough, the importance of the forgiveness of sin that comes through Jesus. So as Jesus visits now these ten fearful men who are locked in a room and he's about to send them out, Jesus reminds them of the heartbeat of why he came. He tells them not that they're going to redo what he has done. That's done once and for all. Forgiveness of sin belongs to Jesus alone. They're not going to redo his work, but they are going to retell it. Be the pronouncers of it. Point to to Jesus as the true Savior of the world and call people to him so that people must either turn to Jesus and receive forgiveness or turn from Jesus and have his forgiveness withheld from them. All this reminds us of what Easter's really about. We know it's not just the eggs, the bunny rabbits, and the pastel colors. But it's not just life after death either. It is that, but it's more than that. It's about how Jesus, by his death and resurrection, secured forgiveness of sin for his people. And that that forgiveness would bring us the patience, the power, and the peace of God. Pray with me. Lord, would you press these things upon our hearts and minds as well? Would you bring us your peace, send us your spirit? We know that our problem is not just that we will die, but that we have died in sin. 
that on our own the wrath of God is upon us. Lord, would you help us to cling to these things, cling to you as the atonement of sin for us. Would your peace go with us, and would you send us out to pronounce your peace to others. We ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.